Wealth of Nations, Introduction to the New Edition. This is from Wealth of Nations first on the cover here. The uniform, constant, and uninterrupted effort of every man to better his condition, the principle from which the public and national, as well as private opulence, is originally derived, is frequently powerful enough to maintain the natural progress of things toward improvement, in spite both of the extravagance of government and of the greatest errors of administration. Introduction to the New Edition, Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith is often seen as the first modern economist. His magnum opus, The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, is widely credited with laying the theoretical and philosophical foundations for the modern free market system, what Smith referred to as commercial society, but has since come to be known as capitalism. The work had an immediate impact on economic thinking at first in Britain, and then from there in Britain's expanding global empire. As government servants and administrators began to design economic policies, especially in the crucial area of trade in foodstuffs, in light of its arguments for the freedom of trade, its economic influence extended to Europe as Danish, French, German, Italian, and Spanish editions soon appeared. The Wealth of Nations is far more than a work of economic theory, however. In his work, Smith, or in this work, Smith presents a powerful blueprint for a stable and peaceful society with which rests upon a hard-headed and realistic assessment of humans and their natures. Adam Smith lived in the relatively lived the relatively uneventful life of a writer, university professor, and government administrator. He was born in the small Scottish town of Kirkleby in 1723. At the age of 14, he went to Glasgow University to study moral philosophy under the eminent Francis Hutchinson. In 1740, he traveled to England to continue his education at Balliol College, Oxford, where he remained six years. Smith was made a professor of logic at Glasgow University in 1751, and shortly thereafter, professor of moral philosophy. In 1759, he published his first great work, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which established his reputation as a leading philosopher in Europe. The Wealth of Nations only burnished that reputation as it made him an eminent man of letters and led to his appointment as Commissioner of Customs in Edinburgh. Despite the great fame that Smith achieved in his lifetime, he was an intensely private person and very little is known of his personal life. As a public figure, he achieved some notoriety for his fits of absent-mindedness, wandering the streets of Glasgow and Edinburgh 
in his dressing gown or lost in thought, silently muttering to himself. Britain in the 1700s was recovering slowly from the bloodily political and religious conflicts that had racked the island in the 17th century. In England, religious nonconformists, Puritans, Quakers, and other assorted sects challenged the authority of the established Church of England. These religious disputes took on political dimensions as the nonconformists challenged the power of the monarchy. Scotland became embroiled in the conflict when Charles I sought to impose the Church of England upon the Scottish people. The religious wars in the British Isles had their counterparts in other parts of Europe, where, since the Protestant Reformation of the early 16th century, doctrinal differences within Christianity had erupted periodically in sectarian violence and civil war. By the 17th century, many Europeans were in despair over the death and destruction wrought by these religious wars and leading thinkers of the time. By the 17th century, many Europeans were in despair over the death and destruction wrought by these religious wars and leading thinkers of the time searched for solutions that could restore peace and order. The English philosopher Thomas Hobbes was to propose one of the most famous of these. In his great work, Leviathan, he argued that for the sake of social peace, individuals should sacrifice their political freedoms to an all-powerful sovereign who would use the political authority invested in him to maintain law and order. In the Leviathan, Hobbes also distanced himself from religious faith on the grounds that such beliefs gave rise to social disorder. <clears throat> In the Leviathan, Hobbes also distanced himself from religious faith on the grounds that such beliefs gave rise to social disorder and violence. For 18th century thinkers, Hobbes' critique of religion for the dangerous passions it unleashed held great appeal and Adam Smith was certainly among those who were attracted to the argument. In several sections near the end of The Wealth of Nations, which are far less well known than the chapters dealing with economic issues, Smith is critical of religion for propagating irrational beliefs and fanaticism. He recommends the study of science and philosophy on the grounds that they are the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. What was less congenial to 18th century writers, including Smith, was Hobbes', Hobbes call for an all-powerful or absolute state, which could disregard the rights of individuals in the name of social peace. By the 18th century, European political theorists and commentators were increase, increasingly viewing the freedom of the individual as, as sacrosanct and in need of protection from arbitrary state power. The rejection of the Habesian state, however, raised a profound question. Without an absolute state, who or what would maintain the social peace? One influential answer to this question was that social peace could be maintained by educating individuals to be benevolent and virtuous. The French philosopher Montesquieu, for instance, made a powerful plea for the cultivation of goodness in his Persian letters 
which was published in 1721. In that work, Montesquieu recounted the history of the troglodytes, an imaginary race of humans who were racked by conflict because each individual looked after his own interest exclusively without considering those of others. Troglodyte society descended into a war of all against all until two wise individuals taught them that the individual's self-interest is always to be found in the common interest and that justice to others is charity for ourselves. Montesquieu's story of the troglodytes also reveals that by the early 18th century, the growing commercialization of society was generating social tensions and conflicts. The expanding market economy, which was subjecting more and more things to the logic of the cash nexus, including food, land, and eventually the relationship between an employer and his workers, was rapidly destroying many customary relationships and traditional ways of doing things. These changes had the greatest impact on peasants and workers, whose access to land, adequate wages, and even supplies of food were threatened by the operation of the burgeoning market economy. By the 18th century, therefore, social stability was threatened, not only by religious passions, but also by individual greed for economic gain, which the newly developing market system was making increasingly possible. This is the historical context in which Adam Smith produced his great work, The Wealth of Nations. In it, he argued that commercial society was not destructive, as many of his contemporaries feared, but actually constructive in that it could be the basis for a stable and peaceful societal order or social order. The virtues of a commercial society were many. For one, it avoided the problems of an overweening state. In fact, Smith argued it needed the opposite. For commercial society to function properly, the state had to govern with a light hand, allowing absolute liberty to its citizens. It was also consistent with human nature, and unlike the calls for educating humans to be good, it was based on a realistic understanding that humans were self-interested, sometimes even selfish, and certainly not always benevolent. As Smith wrote in one of the most memorable passages in Wealth of Nations, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves, not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. Finally, in a commercial society, the well-being of all could be achieved without direction from above, as was the case with Hobbes's absolute ruler but rather arose spontaneously through the operation of the market. In Smith's vivid imagery, it was as if each individual pursuing his self-interest was led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. The Wealth of Nations was certainly a celebration of a modern market society, but not as an end in itself. Rather, it was a means by which the larger goals of individual liberty and social order could be attained. For Smith, commercial society was not the perfect system, but simply superior to the available alternatives. Among them, 
Hobbesian political absolutism and utopian fantasies of cultivating goodness. For Smith, commercial society was not the perfect system, but simply superior to the available alternatives, among them Hobbesian political absolutism and utopian fantasies of cultivating goodness. In fact, Smith, in contrast to many of his present-day adherents, had a keen appreciation for the social conflicts, the inequalities, and other deleterious effects that came with a commercial society. And in this respect, Smith sharply differs from many defenders of capitalism today. First, Smith operated with a conception of equality that was far different from how the concept is commonly understood today. For Smith, individuals were born more or less equal in their physical and mental capacities. The differences in abilities that one encounters in society, Smith argued, were the result of specialization, which slots individuals into different occupations, in most cases for life. In other words, more or less similar individuals were transformed into very different beings by years of work at very different jobs. As Smith put it, the difference between a philosopher and a common street porter seems to arise not so much from nature as from habit, custom, and education. For Smith, the deformation of humans due to tedious and repetitive work was one of the most troubling features of commercial society, which is a second significant difference between him and his early 21st century disciples. Later-day Smithy or latter-day Smithians are rarely so attuned to the human costs of capitalism. The Wealth of Nations, however, devotes several chapters to analyzing the impact of market society on workers and proposes several measures to partly mitigate these impacts. The most important was a state-funded system of public education for all. Finally, Adam Smith was not a dogmatic opponent of all government interference in the operation of the market. In particular, in particular, he welcomed government measures that reduced economic inequality or benefited the poor. This openness to government policies to benefit the losers of capitalism is certainly not a hallmark of today's self-proclaimed Smithians. Many 18th century commentators were wary of commercial society for the greed that they feared it would unleash. The wealth of nation, however, voices no such concerns. This was because nearly two decades earlier, in his theory of moral sentiments, Smith had already argued that self-interest would not reach the destructive proportions because individuals would place restraints on themselves. According to Smith, within each of us there is an impartial spectator who judges our actions, a concept that foreshadows Sigmund Freud's superego. The impartial spectator would serve as a moral barometer and limit the exercise of self-interest to socially acceptable bounds. Smith's arguments for the free market, stripped of his cautions and reservations, were quickly embraced. In the late 18th century Britain, his ideas were used to eliminate restrictions on the grain trade. Extensive regulations, what the eminent historian E.P. Thompson called the moral economy, had been placed on the grain market so that the poor could have access to bread at reasonable prices, which was of critical importance in Europe at the time because even in average years, nearly half of a working person's earnings could be spent on bread. Smith's arguments for the non-interference in the market were also taken to India, where they shaped the response to famines. 
From the late 18th century, British colonial authorities refused to implement relief measures, such as providing food at subsidized prices, on the grounds that they would disrupt the efficient operation of the market. Adam Smith died on July 17, 1790, and was laid to rest with little pomp or ceremony in a cemetery of Canongate Church in Edinburgh. On his tombstone was chiseled a brief epitaph. Here are deposited the remains of Adam Smith, author of The Theory of Moral Sentiments and Wealth of Nations. It is certainly for the latter work that Smith is celebrated today and his ideas continue to find ready adherence. Yet what passes for Smithianism are often simplified versions of the originals. The ambivalence about market society, the complex understanding of human motivations, and the blend of optimism and pessimism about the human condition, hallmarks of Adam Smith's thinking, are rarely encountered in the Smithians of the early 21st century. For these, one must return to the wealth of nations itself. Prasanan Parthasarathi is Associate Professor of History at Boston College. He holds a PhD in economics from Harvard University and writes frequently on Indian history and European economic and social history. That is who is the author of this introduction to the new edition of Wealth of Nations. And <clears throat> since we're on introductions before book one goes, there is an introduction and plan of the work by Adam Smith. Hello, Colonel. Hello, Lance. All right. This is, uh, oh, and over on Wisdom, we have, who may have stopped in to listen or passed through, is Cecilia Grace. Hello, Vershana Brooks, Mary Kay, and Chris. All right. Moving on to the introduction and plan of work by Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations. The annual labor of every nation is the fund which originally supplies it with all the necessities and conveniences of life which it annually consumes and which consists always either in the immediate produce of that labor or in what is purchased with that produce from other nations. According, therefore, as this produce, or what is purchased with it, bears a greater or smaller proportion to the number of those who are to consume it, the nation will be better or worse supplied with all the, nece with all the necessaries and conveniences for which it has occasion. But this proportion must in every nation be regulated by two different circumstances. First, by the skill, dexterity, and judgment with which its labor is generally applied, and secondly, by the proportion between the number of those who are employed in useful labor and that of those who are not so employed. Whatever be the soil, climate, or extent of territory of any particular nation, the abundance or scantiness of its annual supply must, in that particular situation, depend upon those two circumstances. The abundance or scantiness of the supply, too, seems to depend more upon the former of these two circumstances than upon the latter. 
Among the savage nations of hunters and fishers, every individual who is able to work is more or less employed in useful labor and endeavors to provide, as well as he can, the, necess the necessaries and conveniences of life for himself or such of his family or tribe as are either too old or too young or too infirm to go a-hunting and fishing. Such nations, however, are so miserably poor that, from mere want, they are frequently reduced, or at least think themselves reduced, to the necessity sometimes of directly destroying and sometimes of abandoning their infants, their old people, and those afflicted with lingering diseases, to perish with hunger, or to be devoured by wild beasts. Among civilized and thriving nations, on the contrary, though a great number of people do not labor at all, many of whom consume the produce of ten times, frequently of a hundred times more labor than the greater part of those who work, yet the produce of the whole labor of the society is so great that all are often abundantly supplied, and a workman, even of the lowest and poorest order, if he is frugal and industrious, may enjoy a greater share of the, of the necessaries and conveniences of life than it's, it is possible for any savage to acquire. The causes of this improvement in the productive powers of labor and the order according to which its produce is naturally distributed among the different ranks and conditions of men in society make the subject of the first book of this inquiry. Whatever be the actual state of the skill, dexterity, and judgment with which labor is applied in any nation, the abundance or scantiness of its annual supply must depend, during the continuance of that state, upon the proportion between the number of those who are annually employed in useful labor and of those who are not so employed. The number of useful and productive laborers, it will hereafter appear, is everywhere in proportion to the quantity of capital stock which is employed in setting them to work and to the particular way in which it is so employed. The second book, therefore, treats the nature of capital stock, of the manner in which it is gradually accumulated, and of the different quantities of labor which it puts into motion, according to the different ways in which it is employed. Nations tolerably well advanced as to skill, dexterity, and judgment in the application of labor have followed very different plans in the general conduct or direction of it, and those plans have not all been equally favorable to the greatness of its produce. The policy of some nations has given extraordinary encouragement to the industry of the country, that of others to the industry of towns. Scarce any nation has dealt equally and impartially with every sort of industry. Since the downfall of the Roman Empire, the policy of Europe has been more favorable to arts, manufactures, and commerce, the industry of towns, than to agriculture, the industry of the country. The circumstances which seem to have introduced and established this policy are explained in the third book. Though those different plans were, perhaps, first introduced by the private interests and prejudices of particular orders of men, without any regard to, or foresight of, their consequences upon the general welfare of the society, yet they have given occasion to very different theories of political economy, of which some magnify the importance of that industry which is carried on in towns, others of that which is carried on in the country. Those theories have had a considerable influence not only upon the opinions of men of learning, but upon the public conduct of princes and sovereign states. I have endeavored 
in the fourth book to explain as fully and distinctly as I can those different theories and the principal effects which they have produced in different ages and nations. To explain in what has consisted the revenue of that of the great body of people, or what has been the nature of those funds, which, in different ages and nations, have supplied their annual consumption, is the object of these four first books. The fifth and last book treats the revenue of the sovereign, or commonwealth. In this book, I have endeavored to show, first, what are the, necess or what are the necessary expenses of the sovereign, or commonwealth, for of those who... Hmm. In this book, I have endeavored to show first what are the necessary expenses of the sovereign or commonwealth, which of those expenses ought to be defrayed by the general contribution of the whole society, and which of them by that of some particular part only or of some particular members of it. Secondly, what are the different methods in which the whole society may be made to contribute towards defraying the expenses incumbent on the whole society? And what are the principal advantages and inconveniences of each of those methods? And thirdly, and lastly, what are the reasons and causes which have induced almost all modern governments to mortgage some part of this revenue or to contract debts? And what have been the effects of those debts upon the real wealth, the annual produce of the land and the labor of the society? Oh boy. This is going to be interesting, The Wealth of Nations. Right, that was the introduction from The Wealth of Nations. Uh, the first part of that was by uh, Prasenam Parthasathari. Uh, Parthasathar, yeah, his name is interesting. I said it right the first time. Parthasarati. Parthasarati. So Prasenam Parthasarati, Associate Professor of History at Boston College. And then the second part was an introduction and plan of the work by Adam Smith himself, the author of Wealth of Nations. Until next time. I've got a lot more stuff to do coming up. I think I might uh, take a look at um, the prince from Machiavelli in a moment. I'm sure he has some pretty interesting to say. But for now, I'm not. I'll be back.